1: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: What scares you? Are you the kind of person who finds it frightening to contemplate our insignificance in a vast and uncaring universe? Mm-hmm. From before recorded history, people have told tales of powerful beings who come from the sky to watch us, to toy with us, to study us, sometimes to save us, sometimes to do things much more sinister. But something changed about those stories in the 20th century, specifically when a man named Kenneth Arnold reported something unusual he'd seen in the sky, things that came to be known as flying saucers. In the throes of such a time, it was natural to look up, to wonder. I think perhaps the 1951 film, The Thing from Another World, best captured the spirit of the time in its closing moments now before giving you the details of the battle i bring you a warning every one of you listening to my voice tell the world tell this to everybody wherever they are watch the skies everywhere keep
1: looking keep watching the skies
2: Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and this is Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Today, my co host Dr. Karen Stolzno and I are going to discuss a topic which has long fascinated me, one which I used to find both horrifying and mesmerizing. Chances are, if you're listening to a show like Monster Talk, you're probably familiar with the legends of the field now called ufology. Stories about places like Rindlesham Forest, Area 51, Roswell, New Mexico, Shag Harbor, and people like Betty and Barney Hill, and Travis Walton. You've probably seen TV shows with dramatic music and frightening imagery. Lately, I've been on a reading kick, going back to a lot of primary sources to read about the field, and I discovered something. The slick, well-produced, but factually malnourished documentaries from sources like the History Channel seem to have omitted many important details from their retellings of the early foundational cases in this area of study. This is a big topic, and it was therefore necessary that we couldn't go in tremendous detail on every case in this episode to fully explain the reasons why, after all the sightings claimed in the field, we still find ourselves, at the end of the day, skeptical about the idea that aliens are visiting the Earth in physical flying craft. So please check out the show notes at monstertalk.org, where there will be links to lots of additional reading material. And check out the latest book by tonight's guest, UFO researcher Robert Schaefer.
0: Monster dog. Robert Schaefer is a writer, blogger, and skeptical investigator of unidentified flying objects. He runs the Bad UFOs blog, and he's the author of several books, including The UFO Verdict, Examining the Evidence, and UFO Sightings, The Evidence. Robert has written numerous articles for Skeptical Inquirer and Fate magazine, and he travels the country giving talks about alien and UFO claims. So welcome to the show, Robert.
4: Thank you, Karen. Yes, and my newest book is called Bad UFOs, same name as the blog, that's just been out uh, about two months now.
0: Fantastic. And uh, I guess we'll, we'll get into it. So first question, how did you become interested in claims about UFOs and aliens?
4: Well, when I was uh, younger, I was one of those uh, science nerd kids and, you know, in the wake of Sputnik and everything. And there was a big emphasis on science. And uh, I've always been interested in astronomy. And of course, uh, when you start talking about astronomy, then people start talking about life and other worlds. And then people start talking about flying saucers and such. And Mm -hmm. so it kind of goes from there. And uh, so at that time, um, you know, in the 60s, the big... um, uh, in the UFO or or flying saucer field, the uh, NICAP, the Group uh, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, was the uh, the big uh, gorilla on the playing field there. And the head of NICAP, at least for part of the time, uh, was Major Donald Kehoe, who wrote uh, some very fine UFO books, titles like "Flying Saucers Are Real" and uh, such a "Flying Saucer Conspiracy." So. And basically the, um, the gist of, the, of Kehoe and Nijkaff's argument at the time was the Air Force knows more about the flying saucers than they're willing to tell us. <laughs> and so that's a very exciting thing. Uh, but then I, you know, being well-versed in astronomy, and I also read a book by uh, Donald Menzel, uh, the Harvard astronomer who was the first uh, well-known UFO skeptic. And uh, I realized that there was a great deal of misrepresentation and uh, distortion and just BS in general uh, in the stuff that I had been reading. And so I gradually developed a more skeptical view. And uh, then as I, you know, continued to look into this, it just uh, did more and more. At uh, some point, I made contact with Philip J. Class, you know, who was one of the founders of uh, Psychop uh back in the 70s um in fact i think when i made contact with class it was something like 1968 Uh, and we began to uh, work together on this and uh, different things and uh, class was um you know he was a uh, he was author of a number of skeptical ufo books and uh, he was also an editor in um, uh, washington dc of aviation week and space technology magazine he was the senior avionics editor and indeed, he appears to have coined the term avionics for aviation electronics. And uh, so uh, that uh, enabled me to meet a lot more people. And then ultimately, after PSYCOP was founded uh, in, I think, 1976, and of course, Psychop, many of the listeners know, so Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, now mm-hmm. called CSI, definitely to be confused with crime scene investigators. I guess Paul Kurtz didn't <laughs> realize that when he suggested the name change. Um, didn't watch never- much TV. Yeah, I, I think that's the case. And so um, I joined the back almost in the beginning, not quite from the beginning, or within a year of it being founded. And that's how I got to meet all these other amazing people, uh, including Paul Kurtz, Randy, the amazing Randy. I got to meet Martin Gardner get to know him a bit and uh, quite a few uh, of the other uh, people, some of whom, many of whom uh, who have passed on. I met Isaac Asimov once at a Psychop meeting and uh, uh, Sagan was there a number of times and so on. Yeah.
2: So, so this was kind of um, uh, a tough topic because um, it's so big mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that it's difficult to decide where to take a bite, right? It's, it's Right, I mean, it's,
4: and in fact, <laughs> I should... Um, I'm not sure if I have it right here at my fingertips, but it's a quote um, from um, the British 14 skeptic uh, Hillary Evans, uh, who studied uh, complex relationships between UFO beliefs and social issues. He wrote, quote, it is safe to say that no anomalous phenomenon has generated so rich an anomaly cluster as the flying saucer, unquote. Uh, he says uh, we can see that they were unquestionably an idea whose time had come. We sense an air of inevitability because of all of the nonsense that had been going on, or the science fiction, you know, uh, Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and all this stuff. The anomaly cluster uh, that Evans mentioned, originating from UFO reports, it now includes the Men in Black, UFO crashes, UFO bases, military and intelligence agency conspiracies, NASA conspiracies, alien abductions, crop circles, alien autopsies, alien-human hybrids, cattle mutilations, and many, many more. So there is no other paranormal, not ghosts, not Bigfoot, not anything else that has grown into this enormous mass that uh, UFO-related stuff has, and that was, the, that was Hillary's point.
2: Yes, and not only that, but within each of those sort of subgroups, Experts get really meticulous, and I feel I feel bad oh. because I feel like we're about to do something like talking about trains, and there are people who are, you know who can tell you exactly what time the trains arrive, people who can tell you precisely who makes the models of trains, and then mm. if you talk about trains and get those details wrong, they lose their <laughs> mind. So I, I, I don't <laughs> I don't think there's any way I'm not going to make a mistake here, but uh, I, I do want to like get uh, a sense of of the the earliest origins of this field, uh, to maybe, uh, that I think sometimes are glossed over in, in the, uh, in the television shows and third or fourth generation topical books, um, mm-hmm. that are out there. So, so can you tell us a little bit about the origins of, uh, historical UFO stories, uh, like the earliest okay. flying saucers?
4: That's a, a pretty huge, uh, subject uh, right there <laughs> itself. Uh, The classic answer is it began on June 24th, 1947, when Kenneth Arnold reported seeing, was it, 9 to 11 objects that um, Bob, he described them as flying, as looking like a flock of geese, but he somehow concluded that they were very distant, that they were many miles away, that therefore they were huge, and that therefore they must have been traveling very fast. Um, And uh, so... I and mean, that's the classic answer. Now, also, what he reported was not a flying saucer. They looked more like boomerangs. In fact, there's this um, famous photo of Kenneth Arnold holding a drawing of what one of the objects that he claimed that he saw. And it, it basically looks like a boomerang. And you can see that photo. If you go to uh, my debunker website, um, I have a page on Kenneth Arnold. If, if you go to Google and just put in debunker Arnold, that page should come up.
2: And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well to your website. Right. Um,
4: you can see that this and this thing is vaguely bird like. I mean, and that, you know, it appears to be, you know, it has wings and a body and such, uh, or at least, you know, um, at least the, the prominent wings. And so I'm going to argue and many other people would that he saw a flock, probably saw a flock of white pelicans, which uh, is the largest bird in North America. And they were not nearly as far away as he thought they were. And so, therefore, he made that mistake. He thought that they had passed behind the mountain uh, when they, you know, appeared to go by it. Uh, But it's also possible that if they pass in front of the mountain, because of the contrast would change and a white bird, you might not see it against a white, you know, uh, snow-capped mountain. And then you would mistakenly conclude that they had passed behind the mountain when, in fact, they were closer than it so and and the interesting thing about this is it was a reporter's question who um how this got started that uh the he had said uh Arnold had said to the reporter that the objects uh, they bounced like a saucer would if you skipped it across the water he didn't say mm-hmm. they looked like a saucer, he said they bounced like a saucer would uh but then the reporter wrote down flying saucers, and after that people didn't see flying boomerangs, which is what Arnold said they said off oh, flying saucers because that's what they thought they were supposed to see. That's what they read about in the newspapers.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Now, is there a saucer? Again, these these answers are just enormous complexity. If you want to go into all the pre... Oh, that's a big thing now. People are trying to push it back um, and come up with sightings and so on. During World War II, the famous Foo Fighters, um, again, they're not that different from... Um, what people are still seeing sometimes, you know, from aircraft, whatever. And many of the food fighters were either Venus or Jupiter and they didn't realize, you know, it appears to, f- to follow you along, just like the moon appears to follow you along when you're riding in the car. Um, you know, Venus will do the same thing, whether you're in a car or in an airplane. And, uh, so, you know, but it wasn't a big deal back then. It wasn't like it is now, but people are going back and studying Marty Kottmeyer and, uh, Number of others are writing about the you know science fiction history that sort of presages the flying saucers and the notion that uh, they're alien visitors at the very in the very early days of uh, the time of Arnold and the immediate post Arnold sightings UFOs or flying saucers as they were then called were not necessarily interplanetary. In fact, probably were not interplanetary. In fact, many of them were supposed to be small. They were supposed to be like literally like saucers like a hubcap that you could just pick up and carry in your hands. Mm-hmm. So a lot
2: of them looked a lot like hubcaps. <laughs> yeah. <they
4: were.
0: laughs> and still do. <laughs> <laughs>
4: but that was um you know, so the the notion of of well a saucer equals an interplanetary graph, that notion hadn't really settled in, in a big way yet but it gradually developed uh, largely because of Keyhole.
0: Okay and uh, did uh, Arnold stay involved with flying saucer research after he uh, had his sighting
4: Yes he did and he reported several more and he reported some loopy stuff it's uh on that page there if you want to see it uh, uh he uh, he um he, yeah he he was a, what they call a repeater meaning that he had, you know, seen UFOs not just once, but several times. And he did occasionally uh, participate in uh, conferences and things like that, although not in a really big way.
2: So I don't want to jump to the end of the story, so to speak, but if, if the original sighting was not of saucers, but the idea of saucers got out there, why right. why do you think people I mean like the expectation you think was driving them to see saucer-shaped craft? I mean because some of the sightings were, you know, lights in the sky, but some of the sightings are or well, some of the stories were yes. very detailed saucers landing, people coming out or aliens coming out. So why saucers? What like is it what do you think's going on there?
4: Well, it again, it's um I mentioned some of the people who are researching these um and I have a picture of that in my uh, new book, uh, Bad UFOs, in, uh forget which chapter it is, I think, uh, chapter three, where basically, um, talk or no, I'm sorry, p- chapter five, UFO abductions. I have a picture of um, two pictures from uh, Buck Rogers comics in 1930 that show a, a UFO abduction that looks surprisingly modern um, in that sense uh, of a poor, helpless woman in a very short dress being pulled up into a uh, UFO and then uh, she's uh, set out on a table uh, with her skirt riding up and the spacemen are, you know, examining her. And uh, this is pretty much exactly what people claim is happening now, but this was published in 1930. And in fact, if you look at some of these compilations and such, a lot of this is posted on Facebook and so on. Um, There's a group called UFO Updates and you can see some of it on there. That this was here. It's as Hillary Evans said in the quote that I read. He said, you know, the, we were ready for them. And because we were ready for the UFOs, they appeared.
0: And how much do you think uh, modern sightings or sightings in general have been influenced by pop culture?
4: Oh, very much. Very much. It's uh, well. It, the best example is this. It, it, the real uh, Roswell, we were going to talk about Roswell. So let's talk about it briefly. Well, this was back in 1947, uh, Roswell. Um, there was a rancher who found something on the uh, out there uh, in the on the range and uh, debris of some kind. He brought it in to town, showed it to the sheriff. Sheriff said, "You better show it to the people at the air base." So he did. They decided to go out and see for themselves and collect it. And turns out it was uh, debris from a balloon. Now. And this was uh, like one of these 48-hour uh, wonders, you know, as far as a news story back in July of 1947. And it, I believe it was even briefly mentioned in the New York Times. And some of the other papers had, you know, big uh, uh, stories. Army finds flying saucer, at, uh, you know, in Roswell. And then a day or two later, you no, know, it was just, uh, you know, debris from a crashed balloon. Mm-hmm. Now, um, but 1947 the world wasn't ready for a, a crazy story like this yet. You know what I mean? To make something big out of it. Whereas, you know, when the sur- story resurfaced and it wasn't until about 1980, 1981, that there was a book written by Charles Berlitz. Oh, he, of, you know, Bermuda triangle fame
5: mm-hmm. and
4: William Moore and, uh, kind of with research assistance from dear old Stanton Friedman, the flying saucer physicist that, uh, they, we're talking, um, to, uh, uh, Jesse Marcel, the guy who was, uh, at the air base, the, one of the, uh, officers there. And he said, oh no, it was a real flying saucer and so on. So they wrote up that story. And at that point, the world was ready for it. See, I mean, it was ready for flying saucers in 1947. It wasn't really ready for a you know, crash saucer and a big story. Now coming along a little bit after that, there was the famous, uh, hoax of uh, Frank Scully's book, uh, Behind the Flying Saucers, and these two guys who were the um, Newton, Silas Newton and Leo Jabauer, turns out, were his sources, and uh, they were basically swindlers and all this good stuff. But it wasn't, again, uh, uh, you know, it it, it was a best-selling book for a while, Behind the Flying Saucers, Mm in 1952 or thereabouts, before J.P. Kahn, a newspaperman from um, San Francisco, looked into this in considerable detail and found out exactly what was going on.
2: And uh, Chris Carter, who did the X-Files, named Scully uh, of the partners there after Scully from the book there. So nice tie-in. So there are these cases where they seem sincere. There's cases where they uh, may be misinterpreting things. But then there's... Cases like George Adamski and the Space Brothers that were really popular back in the 50s. What, can you tell us about that a little bit?
4: Uh, yeah, a lot of people, um, including many who should have known better, uh, fell for this uh, Adamski story of, you know, Space Brothers, wise and benevolent Space Brothers who would land out in the desert and only, you know, talk to him. You know, he developed a whole little foundation, a whole following and everything. In fact, it's still going. Um, there's a guy named uh Glenn Steckling here in the San Diego area who is uh the uh G- George Damski's uh representative here on earth today and the Damski Foundation is still functioning and selling books and all this uh, good stuff and uh, and I i in fact, I've heard him give his talk several times and he'll just tell you this is all true and he's got home movies that his father had taken his father was like um, George Adamski's right-hand man at the time of Adamski's death uh, so his father inherited uh, the enterprise when the great man died and uh, he has a whole notebook full of uh, photos uh, that supposedly were taken by Adamski and they're they're pretty pretty hokey looking and uh, home <laughs> movies and all this good stuff so uh yeah, it became uh, uh, quite a big thing. But a lot of people, you know, <clears throat> laughed at it. And groups like NICAP that I mentioned earlier uh, in the early days, they would not accept any contact these stories. And of course, Damsky was far from the, the only one. There was Howard Menger, and there was uh, quite a few of these others, George Van Tassel, and so on. And they all had their own following. In fact, they used to have a contact the. Uh, get together in the 1950s at a place in the california desert in the mojave desert called uh, giant rock and uh they would have uh, once a year have a gathering out there and uh apparently it was uh was a lot of fun i've seen some of the photos and uh Gray barker used to go there and uh james mosley you know ufologists who were uh really uh myth makers and, and really legendary uh people in terms of their uh, impact upon uh, ufology, um, I knew both of them. Uh, Mosley only died about three years ago. Barker died 1984, I think it was.
2: Yeah, I actually, I got to talk to Mosley uh, before he died uh, in regards, he had a, a small tie-in with the Watertown ghost case, <laughs> which uh-huh. uh, was a very interesting fellow.
0: Hmm. So oh, how oh, did- oh, oh,
2: oh, sorry, and, and my favorite thing about Mosley is that he called the whole field Ufology instead of ufology <laughs> he
4: Clever. <did>. And, uh, <laughs> but he uh, was uh, promoting what he called the three and a half dimensional theory of ufos that uh, he knew that most or the great majority of what we were hearing about this was indeed foology just like uh, you said but he thought that there was some sort of a paranormal or uh, alternate reality aspect to the thing that was uh, in some sense, real.
0: Mm. So uh, this brings me to ask: How did a lot of these early enthusiasts meet and communicate?
4: Well, that's a good question. There, there wasn't much in the way of uh, UFO conferences and things, uh, at least in the early days. Um, the first, really, uh, I mentioned uh, Giant Rock, uh, and I'm, tr- I'm, I'm not clear on the exact years that they did this. I'm thinking it was the late 50s and maybe early 60s. Um, But James Mosley founded um, a group called the Congress of Scientific Ufologists um, that later became the National UFO Conference. And this started, I want to say, like 1967 or something. And they did it every year until relatively recently. I think the last one was 2004 um, in Hollywood. And I went to that one. I went to several of the others. They, they had a big one in um, Manhattan in uh, 1980. And I guess at that point, Mosley had a little more money and uh, he had inherited a, a certain amount of money from his family. And um, so he didn't work a real job. He just spent all his time um, <clears throat> chasing down uh, ufology or euphology and also going to um, down to uh, south america <clears throat> uh, peru i think to uh to uh, rob graves basically to uh excavate uh artifacts or grave rob as you uh, uh want to call it he, he in fact one two of those raiders
2: what they call it in, the video
4: <laughs> yeah. uh, in fact his book uh mosley's uh autobiography also written with carl flock the late carl flock Uh, was published by Prometheus Books, uh, which is, you know, for the most part, skeptical titles, and it was called Confessions of a... uh, Oh, shockingly close to the truth, Confessions Mm -hmm. of a Grave-Robbing Ufologist. And so it makes a very interesting read. In fact, one of those trips, I think at least, uh, Randy was down there with him, the amazing Randy. Those guys uh, were good buddies at one time, and John Keel, and so on. And you mentioned uh, also the uh, uh, Long John Nebel, uh, who was the uh, uh, was a radio host uh, in New york city a late night uh, radio host who had all kinds of oddball things on there sort of a nineteen sixties predecessor of uh, art bell and uh his enterprise and uh so it's kind of interesting that you've got you know randy and and uh, john keel and uh you know uh Moseley, um Basically, hanging out, hanging around together. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I, it was. I go ahead.
0: Wanted to ask if there was a social aspect to a lot of these early UFO
4: groups. Well, among among the the participants, the small number of participants, yes. But if we're talking about general, you know, conferences, or if we're talking about like local meetings, I think most of them did not have any substantial meetings. I mean, they might have a meeting to discuss some local sightings or something like that. But but as far as anything that involved the public or large numbers of people, that really wasn't happening until, um, really until, you know, later, the 60s and the 70s. So it, and I would say there was only a minimal social aspect in the early days. If by the early days of ufology, uh, we want to say from roughly from Kenneth Arnold uh, through the 50s and the early 60s, um, there was very little social aspect. The whole thing exploded in a big way in the middle 60s. You got your sightings in Michigan and Ohio and uh, all this, the famous swamp gas sightings and so on. And uh, then the whole thing blew into a, a huge thing. And uh, then the Air Force had had enough of this, and they tried to get out from under it. And they commissioned the um, Condon Report, the uh, University of Colorado study, headed up by Edward U. Condon, who was a very well-known physicist, a highly respected physicist. But, of course, as a physicist, he was all, you know, um, skeptical. And uh, so they said he was close-minded and so on. It was a huge controversy about the uh, Condon report. But I think that that his conclusion and there and and there's a lot of legitimate criticisms of uh, that report and the way it was done but contained a lot of very worthwhile uh, investigation and worthwhile uh, work also so it's uh, I think it has withstood the test of time as you know they didn't really you know, lose anything important they didn't you know skip over anything that might have been uh, um, significant
2: so I think you, there's a couple of things going on in these early days you've got people telling stories about seeing lights and seeing objects in the sky spotting UFOs some people saying saucers but over time this has evolved to the point that uh, there's like uh, well-known alien species even like like people from like different different groups of uh, reptilians and the people from the Pleiades I, yes
4: the Pleiadians and yeah. so, so the, yeah. it's it's really Ant- getting quite secto- complicated. Yeah, it's uh well how many different types of angels are there? There's angels, there's archangels, there's dark angels, there's you know what I mean. Uh the same thing in Ascended theology masters. demonology, yes. Exactly. You take you take a um, a discipline that has essentially no data and no reality such as demonology and you can hypothesize all the different types of demons that you want. And nobody can say that you're wrong. And that's pretty much what's happened here. And and so these stories have evolved. In fact, now <clears throat> this guy, Dr. David Jacobs, who who uh, mm-hmm. is a historian, um, retired now from uh, Temple University in Philadelphia. Um, and he is, um, well, he has been an a a ufologist and uh, he started out as uh writing history of UFOs, uh, in the seventies and then gradually in the eighties and nineties got in a big way into this abduction business, along with Bud Hopkins and John Mack, um, of whom he is the only survivor of the three today. And, um, he has just written a book, uh, uh the, what is it? Walking among us where, um, talks about how alien human alien hybrids are um you know are literally are, are infiltrating our society and are going to take over at some point and we don't know what they want or when they're going to do anything and there's nothing we can do about it and if you read that book he's got a whole demonology if you will of of the different types of aliens there's uh, insectoids who appear to or. Yeah, they're, they're like praying mantises. That basically, and they're like six feet tall praying mantises, and they stand there and they, I guess, don't say much. But they're clearly in charge. And then these, there's the greys. There's tall greys and short greys. And he's got oh, quite a, uh, <laughs> quite a categorization there. That could be, you know, a veritable uh, Linnaeus, you know, of uh, classification <laughs> schemes and um of of beings that simply don't exist but a-
2: a- alien <laughs> yes
4: something like I that.
0: was uh, <laughs> um I'm sure you you've heard of uh, Jeff Pickman before yes. from, from Colorado oh. and he once called me a racist because I referred to aliens as little green men yes
4: <laughs> it's, it's okay as long as you don't discriminate against someone race exactly up. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well
2: i thinking about this there's um We talked briefly about Barker and Mosley. You've got Greg Barker, James Mosley, and John Keel producing books and articles about these topics. But we also have this fellow, Ray Palmer. Uh, Can can you talk about his role? Because I think all these guys are are producing content, and there's something about a written article that seems to carry more weight than just a story you pass along, you know?
4: Right. Well, Ray Palmer, and he is earlier. He's in the very early days of... uh, ufology uh mosley and barker become significant as we get you know into the 50s and the 60s uh the um, ray palmer was an editor of science fiction books uh, and, and or magazines i guess i'm not so sure about books um he i believe founded fate magazine he was the first to publish um as a magazine article uh anything by or about uh, kenneth arnold and uh I believe it was the first issue of fate magazine that said, had an article saying, I did see the flying discs and it was, uh, by Kenneth Arnold. Uh, and, uh, so it was, you know, his version of the story. And I'm sure that, uh, uh, Palmer put his, uh, fingerprints in this thing too. He was, you know, too good of a pot boiler, a sensation, uh, monger, if you will, um, and then somehow he ended up selling fate magazine to somebody else. He also used to be the editor of amazing stories. So the guy was very well versed in science fiction. He, uh, Palmer was a guy who first published this, uh, the Shaver mystery, you know, which was pure gold for him. This guy, Richard Shaver was, um, a guy, he was a welder, I believe. Um, yes. Yes. and he was, uh, admittedly of rather shaky mental health, and I believe had been some institutionalized for uh, at least some period of time. He began to hear voices in his welding machine, and they were talking about you know these underground caves where there were robots, and there were good robots battling bad robots, and so on, and somehow the fate of humanity depended on all this, and it was an interesting story. In fact, I think he started to write them as fiction, and then said, no, it's not fiction, it's all true. And uh, this became a huge thing. Lots of people say, "Oh yeah, I've seen these robots too." The you know they came up, you know, and um, so, and and it remains one of the more interesting chapters, you know, in the, in the history of woo um, and science, science, especially science fiction related woo um, in the twentieth century. Uh, and this, I think, was the late forties. I think you're talking about something like forty. Well, I'm not sure if it was during the war. Or,
2: yeah, he was doing amazing stories through '49, as far as I know.
4: Yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh yeah, so and then the, so a shaver thing and then he recognized when, you know, Kenneth Arnold sighting, he recognized, you know, this was gold also. And so he promoted it as much as he could. Um one of my favorites uh was and, and when uh Palmer later uh, had uh, I I guess he sold Fate magazine and he was no longer with Amazing Stories, so he started his own magazine. I think it was Space World or something like that and he ran some legitimate articles on on you know the space program very fine articles mixed in with crazy flying saucer stuff yeah. <laughs> and uh one of my favorites was one of his uh, issues uh, on the cover it said you know NASA photographs the hole in the pole cuz everybody knows there's a giant gaping hole at the north pole and uh you know there's a civilization down there or something why the the, the oceans don't run down into there i don't understand but uh, I guess there must be a, a wall or something to keep the water up here so that it can't run down into the center of the earth. But basically, um, and it looked like what he said was true. But, and he said this was taken, I forget which year, uh, satellite photos, and this is from the 60s sometime, of. Um, and it appears that there's a, there's, a, there's a big black hole at the North Pole. Well, this was taken in um, November of uh, whichever year it was. Well, of course, at that time of year, the, the sun is not visible up above 70 degrees or whatever latitude. It's dark 24 hours a day. And this, of course, this was a, was a composite photo because you can't have all like you can't have North America and Asia having sunlight at the same time because it just doesn't work that way. One's going to have night and the other one's going to have day. Uh, And and so the whole earth is like having daylight except for this hole at the pole. And it's just a composite of, you know, of, of strips of photographs. And you can't show anything up at the top because there's no sunlight up, you know, at the North Pole in November.
1: It is Ryan here. And I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? I couldn't sleep
0: last night after listening. This podcast is genuinely scary.
3: That's what people are saying about Frightful. And if you'd like a few nightmares of your own, then how about you step this way? Hi, I'm Peter Laws, and I'm an author, journalist, and the host of Frightful, the podcast that is giving folks the serious creeps. From spine-tingling tales of the paranormal and shocking true crime to disturbing cults, possessions, and the forgotten horrors of history— Frightful is the podcast that pulls you into the darkness with immersive music, sound effects and storytelling that is designed with one thing in mind to get under your skin. With new episodes every other Sunday, you'll have plenty to keep that heart rate high. The good news is it's available free wherever you get your podcasts. The bad news is that after listening to this show, you might just have to spend a few more cents on electricity. After all, you're going to be sleeping with the lights on. So search Frightful in your podcast apps and I will see you there. In the dark,
4: and so, but this was the you know the hole in the pole, according to uh, Palmer. Yeah,
2: the, the,
4: there's a couple of things
2: that I find funny about Palmer. That one is that um, DC Comics named uh, one of their characters after him, uh, Ray Palmer from the who is the Atom, uh, who can shrink and control his atoms. Is uh, as far <laughs> as I know, is named after Ray Palmer. And the other thing is, I've been. Uh, Jim Lippard uh, helped me track down some of these old Long John Nebel uh, radio shows, and I was listening to them. And they had an episode where uh, Ray Palmer and I think Arthur C. Clarke were on the same episode, and they were talking about the Shaver mysteries. And they talked about this angry young science fiction writer who had um, uh, accosted Palmer and demanded that he explain whether or not these Shaver stories were supposed to be real or whether they were supposed to be fiction. And the young uh, sci-fi writer was Harlan Ellison, which is, uh, <laughs> I, 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 it's just, it, it's, it just touches on so much of American culture, the, these, these young, yes. the, the, the roots are deep and complicated, so.
4: He was, Harlan Ellison was at the SciCob conference uh, in Burbank in uh, 2002, I think it was. Oh, yeah. I sat at his table at a banquet that he's a interesting fellow.
2: He's an interesting <laughs> character indeed, yep, yep.
4: Yeah. And if you want to know more about Ray Palmer, talk to Jim Oberg. Oberg actually knew him. I mean, he wrote for him. He actually went once up to Wisconsin and uh, visited with Ray Palmer, and uh, he can tell you some interesting things. Yeah, can
0: we talk a little bit about Betty and Barney Hill?
4: Right. Well, that was the first um, UFO abduction story in the United States. Uh, And, of course, as soon as that one got big publicity, then many more followed. Uh, the only UFO abduction claim, uh, of that kind was, uh, down in Brazil, I think 1957, Antonio Villabois, who was, uh, abducted into a flying saucer with a very attractive, uh, alien woman with whom he was, uh, forced to have sex and, um, then, you know, was sent back and, uh, I guess with a cigarette and, uh, whatever. And, um. And not too many people took that seriously, although although some did. And uh, Betty and Barney, of course, it's a very complicated story. They were driving back from uh, through the White Mountains in um, New Hampshire uh, late at night. It was around 10, 11 p.m. Um, toward their home in um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And um, they were coming back from Canada, and they saw this object that uh, at least um, – you know, appeared to be following them again, and which, of course, a, uh, you know, an astronomical object will do. Um, and then, uh, at first, Barney wasn't uh, too concerned. He didn't think anything of it, but Betty was getting very excited. Oh, Barney, you're going to snap the car. You're going to see this, you know. And uh, so, uh, finally, he did, and he became convinced that, you know, he was seeing creatures. He cut the binoculars out. Uh, and looked at it, and uh, he thought he saw windows on the so-called craft with uh, aliens, and they looked like Nazis, and this uh, disturbed him very much. Because Barney was black, and uh, Betty was white, so you have that element of, uh, and in fact, some of the um, correspondence of Dr. Simon, who was a psychiatrist that they talked to and who did the hypnosis on them, some of his um, stuff that's more recently coming to light that he had written showed it. he absolutely did not believe this abduction story. He believed they saw something in the sky that they didn't understand that puzzled them. But he, mm-hmm. but he recognized the abduction story as a pure fantasy. And uh, it, but he um, was talked. About, he talked in one of these uh, letters uh, about uh, Barney's uh, racial paranoia, which he thought was uh, extremely well developed. And Barney was, I, I guess, being one of the few black people in, all, in the whole state of New Hampshire. Um, perhaps he had some reason to be concerned, although I don't think he ever wrote about or, or told about any overt uh, instances that did occur. Well, what more can we say? They uh, started to have dreams about as they, when they got home. She started to have dreams about uh, uh, being abducted by a UFO. And then the dream story is essentially the same story that is supposedly the true story. And then, of course, somebody suggested to her, well, maybe it's not a dream. Maybe it's really what happened. Then uh, they started. They were, they were having a rough time of a number of things. And uh, so they went to uh, the psychiatrist and he hypnotized them, uh, Dr. Simon. He was well known. He was a guy. Who, uh during uh after World War II uh specialized in uh, treating uh what we now call uh PTSD and so on he used to call it shell shock yeah right. uh, so he recognized this as a sort of a uh an instance of that but is not you know you can't infer that it was you know something that that it was a real craft or a real abduction because people can often you know, React greatly uh, to imaginary problems that they think they see ghosts or whatever else it's
2: a it's a it's a very well known story now and I know that there was a made for TV movie about it that had uh, I think James Earl Jones playing Barney um, right and it seems like almost like a template case for understanding uh, what you're supposed to experience when you're abducted right. but but how did it become so popular? Did it was there a book before the movie or like how did her story become yeah, so well known? Well,
4: it, it was written up by um uh, John Fuller, John G Fuller, who was a very well-known writer uh for a magazine called uh, uh Saturday Review. Uh, remember back there there used to be for our younger listeners, there used to be things called magazines that people would read that would come out <laughs> once a month or once a week and you would get the news and read you know literature and uh, current events and and arts and things uh, from the magazine stories so these things were widely read at the time and um so john fuller he had he was already in new hampshire to do a um an account of the um so-called incident at exeter which was basically lights in the sky that people were seeing around exeter new hampshire and geographically this is close to portsmouth and Somehow he heard heard about, uh, oh, Betty and Barney were going to, had been invited to give their talk, uh, to tell about their story to a a church group or something like that. And so they were there, and then Fuller went to hear this. Uh, And so then he decided, well, this is a great story. So first of all, it got written up in Look Magazine, and it was hugely successful. I mean, it sold enormous numbers of magazines. fact I'm thinking if it may have been a two-part or three-part, I don't recall exactly. And... uh, so then he recognized that this was a great book and so the book um The Interrupted Journey was published. And um that with the participation of Betty and Barney and also uh Dr. Simon that uh and they all agreed to this. I mean, you know, there are you know, there would be issues of confidentiality concerning, you know, psychiatric treatment and so on, but obviously um this was uh, allowed for as part of the book contract and so on. And so quite a lot of this, you know, is uh, out there quotes because the, the sessions were recorded. And so there are transcripts and so on of the, uh, uh, you know, there, there are quotes in the book from some of these sessions.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, and he is kind of, Dr. Simon is kind of non-committal in the book in terms of what it was, even though there's uh one or two places where he kind of says, yeah, he doesn't think it's real, but, uh, after that, when in fact, in the wake of the movie, the movie made it look like he was uh, a believer in their abduction story, and he told uh, his uh, people on a number of occasions, and wrote on a number of occasions, and absolutely not, this is this is a fantasy, not a real event. Uh,
0: so, Robert, I'm sure you're aware of Stan Romanek. Oh, yes. The the Colorado abductee, as he claims. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you heard of the story? This is just a side point, but did you hear that he once claimed he woke up one morning and he was wearing Betty Hill's bathrobe?
4: Oh, oh, no, I didn't hear that one. He's got a lot of really good stories. He claims that he fell off a ladder and uh, hurt himself and injured his leg and uh, whatever. They they were going to have – he was going to have surgery on it to correct – Mm-hmm. uh, the, the condition. And then he, the aliens came by the, the night before the surgery and, um, took, uh, abducted him and they did some, basically they fixed his leg. And then the next day when he went into the doctor and the doctor said, Oh, we don't need to do any surgery. It's already healed. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's and, the guy uh, behind the alien in the window story.
4: Exactly. And, uh, it's, uh, a very funny I really like what uh, uh, what you guys did, and uh, Brian Bonner with the uh, (laughs) the alien in the 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 boo video, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, that was uh, my husband Matthew Baxter and Brian Bonner, and yeah, yeah, their team putting to replicating basically that alien in the
4: the window. Their their alien was much better than Stans. And uh, well,
0: everyone thought that their video was the original one.
4: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, well, it's a much better one. So it maybe, was,
0: yeah, more realistic yeah. alien.
4: <laughs> yes, yes, and uh, and of course, Stan is in a lot of trouble now. He's going to go on trial, I think, in a couple of months on accusations of child porn. Apparently, child yes. porn was found on his computer, and uh, but he's arguing that he's uh, somehow a victim of a conspiracy on the part of uh, the powers that be. They want to silence him from yeah. talking about UFOs. And so this is how they're doing it.
0: Yeah, they planted it on his computer. That's his question.
4: Yes, exactly. Oh, he's had so many totally implausible stories. I heard him give a talk at one of these uh, UFO congresses. and uh, um, Oh, he claimed also to have a um, photograph of the real Roswell debris. Uh, and he just flashed it up on the screen for just a second. You couldn't really see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, but, you know, for this will be the subject for some later talk or something. he... As far as I know, he never came forward with that.
0: Yeah, he's done that a number of times. I think he's going to reveal something later on and just gives a tidbit, <laughs> and yeah, that's it. It's his style. But I yeah. guess moving on uh, to another case. Uh, what about the the case of Travis Walton? Can you tell us a bit about that one?
4: Oh, that's a good one. Uh, yeah, Travis Walton with the uh, woodcutters. Uh, what was it? Seven people, six woodcutters, and uh, including his good buddy. Um, uh, Mike Rogers. And then the other five, uh, people who were sort of, um, they weren't, uh, they were just hired like for temporary, uh, work on a project. They were not, you know, anybody that were known very well to Walton or to, uh, Mike Rogers. Uh, Rogers was the guy who was heading up this woodcutting team. They had a contract with the forest service to, uh, clear out some lumber and they were falling behind on it. And, uh, Whatever, And this was in the immediate um, aftermath of the Betty Hill, Barney Hill movie, the UFO incident movie, which was, I think, October 20th of 75. And this occurred about two weeks later. And um, it was out in the they were dry, they were coming back from a day of of chopping wood in the in the forest. And they were in this pickup truck. Uh, And then all of a sudden they allegedly see this bright light out there in the forest and uh, looking like something up in the trees or UFO or whatever. And uh, so Mike Rogers stops the truck. Um, Travis jumps out. These other guys were in the back seat and he runs off and he said, "No, Travis, no. And then there was a big flash of light and supposedly he falls to the ground. And then at that point, Mike Rogers hits hits the gas and goes down the road, leaving poor Travis there with the aliens. And then they say, "Well, maybe we should go back." Um, and I was just listening. They had a big thing on the on the fortieth uh, anniversary of this uh, just last year. Um, they had a big um, UFO um, a meeting, a, a, a little conference there uh in uh, Snowflake Arizona which is where it happened a tiny little town up in the mountains in uh, northeast Arizona and uh I wasn't there but uh but they were selling the uh the DVDs of it at the uh UFO Congress and so I I bought some and uh and on it uh, Mike Rogers said that um he only went a quarter mile down the road and then he stopped and he got out and it basically like they thinking what should we do should we go back stay here hmm, stay here go back go back stay here and they wasted a lot of time like that and then finally and he said only a quarter of a mile hell they could have walked back there but uh so then all right let's go back and see if we can find Travis and they go back and they can't find him and so then they come into town and they tell the police the story of course the police don't believe it and uh one of the things they do is they give everybody a polygraph test and For the most part, uh, they did pretty well. uh, So uh, people say, look at that. They all passed their lie detector tests. They're all telling the truth. Well, not quite, um, because it it wasn't really about UFOs or anything directly. The questions were, did you kill Travis Walton and leave his body in the woods? Did you cause physical harm to Travis Walton? Do you know where Travis Walton is right now? You know, questions like that, which is what you would expect the police to to be asking in a situation like that. Mm Um, and he was gone. He was missing, supposedly, for five days. Now, the really interesting thing is there was a group called Ground Saucer Watch, which was based right there in the Phoenix area. And so one of the guys went out to talk to um, Travis's brother, Dwayne Walton, uh, and, and the family members, while Travis was supposedly missing. And they weren't worried about him at all. And again, I have a page on this. If you want to read the complete story or the, the complete skeptics case, if you will, uh, on the Travis Walton story, um, just Google uh, debunker Walton, it should probably come up, uh, have a page on Travis Walton. And so um, he, what they found, what Grant Saucer Watch found was that nobody, the, the mother wasn't worried, the brother wasn't worried, uh, 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 you know, aren't you worried that, you know, Travis might be harmed by, the, oh no, the aliens. Uh, they always bring him back. They don't harm anybody. Um, in fact, he, the brother was uh, envying Travis. Oh, he's got the, this fantastic opportunity to ride on the saucer, and I didn't get it. I hope, you know, I'll get my. And his mother said, you know, that? no, don't bother. She was telling the, the police, don't bother to go out and look for him. You won't find him. He's not in this world. Well, actually, he was in all likelihood hiding out somewhere in a cabin in the woods. There had been Philip Glass spent, uh, you know, the UFO the Dean of UFO skeptics spent an enormous amount of time researching this. And he wrote it up in, um, I think it was UFOs, the public deceived, which was published in 83 or 84. Uh, I have, uh, some of classes, um, white papers, uh, on, uh, my debunker site and, um, in which he he goes into a fair amount of detail here. So basically that not only was the family not worried about him while he was missing, but also Mike Rogers was saying, boy, I hope that the uh, forest service takes this uh, into account because uh, these, uh, my people won't go back in the woods. Now, you know, the woodcutters are too frightened. And so we can't, we can't make that, uh, you know um, you know, that, that deadline. And, uh, And of course now there's, you know, Walton and his buddies are saying, Oh, that class is ridiculous. There was no problem with the uh Forest Service, whatever, whatever. But that's what uh they were saying, even while uh Travis was missing. They were not worried about Travis, they were worried about the uh Forest Service contract and whether they can get out of the penalty clause on that for being late. Okay. So anyway, so Travis turns up and then there's another story, and again this is gonna be enormously complicated. The, the guy by the name of Jeff Wells who was part of the national enquirer team who um wrote this up the national Enquirer sent i think these six guys out to phoenix uh in the immediate aftermath of travis turning up again and um he uh they among the things that they did um they arranged a polygraph test uh with uh this guy i think his name is mccarthy who was a he was the senior polygraph examiner in the state of Arizona at the time, um, and his conclusion was gross deception. And uh, as soon as uh, uh, Dwayne Walton, the Travis's brother, heard that, I'll kill the son of a bitch. Yeah, and This is all written up by the National Enquirer guy, not in the Enquirer, but he was Australian, Jeff Wells, mm-hmm. and when he got back to uh, Melbourne he wrote uh in the age he wrote this and then we uh Ken Frazier got the rights to republish it in Skeptical Inquirer um and uh, and I also have that uh, on my webpage there on the debunker so uh if you read that you'll see uh basically that this thing was a you know it was an attempt to uh to fool people and uh he he basically is making a living out of doing this now there's all kinds of little um events or events large and small the big ones being like the uh UFO uh Congress in uh, uh Fountain Hills Arizona near Phoenix near Scottsdale and uh this is uh each year and but Walton is basically he goes to every UFO related anything now practically including the small ones uh now he's playing the guitar he was uh <laughs> in addition <laughs> to sitting in the dealers room and uh trying to pedal you know books and DVDs and so on um, there was a Hollywood movie made of this story. What well, was A Fire in the Sky. Yep. Uh, and uh, now there's a new movie uh, uh, just called Travis. It's a documentary. It tells the story. It's very well made, but of course, it's totally from the standpoint of uh, this is all true. And
2: uh, I think, I mean, just because of the, we're running low on time, there was. Um, um, wasn't there a financial factor involved with the National Enquirer at that time? Weren't they looking for?
4: Yes, uh, there was something like a million dollar offer for um, proof of uh, alien life, you know, alien visits. Uh, and, of course, nobody could actually do that. So then they had a $10,000 offer or whatever I don't recall exactly uh, for the best UFO case of the year. And so, of course, the uh, Walton story got the best UFO case of the year. And, uh, and so then they split the money up, uh, the people involved.
2: Well, and that's 1970s $10,000. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is like $3 million. Right? <laughs> well, like that, <laughs> Still, I mean, you know, I, I think there's a quote Daniel Loxton told me. What I don't, He was quoting someone else, but it's, uh, when you're looking at uh, hoaxes, that it, it doesn't have to be a certain amount of money; it just has to be enough money, right? You know. Yeah,
4: yeah, and and, and, and well, class would argue that the the motivation for the hoax really was there was they were facing a penalty clause in the contract because they were not cutting enough trees and, and whatever, not doing it fast enough. They were supposed to clear some land, I guess, for fire protection or whatever, and it wasn't happening fast enough, and so here was an act of God that would you know, excuse them uh, from the penalty.
2: We, we talk about this all the time um, on monster stories. The sort of uh, retellings that you get in paranormal literature tend to um, ignore things that don't seem uh, or that, that are testable, but seem implausible. You know, they, they, it's like they leave out the things that would make you flag it as possibly not a true story.
4: Right, exactly, and, and, and they include the stuff that makes it sound, you know, unexplainable. If something makes it sound explainable, they leave that out.
2: Is right. So it, it, it's it's very much a a, a um, in my opinion a uh, a confirmation bias problem within the fields uh, where you're dealing with these kind of topics that the the literature itself has a tendency to to filter towards or to be heavily biased. And so I feel in in a sense, you know, as a skeptic, I w- I have the same situation going on because I'm I'm biased towards finding out whether things are true and so I'm looking for falsifiability. So the stuff I want to see typically is can this be tested and if so how did it fare, right? And but that aside, um am I right? I mean, is 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 the whole field as crazy and silly as it seems to me, because like the more I look back at the original case material, it seems absurd. Like there's so many of the cases deal with, well, this, get this, this ships are from Venus and this ship's from Mars. And I, you know, this ship's from Mercury, it, things that we know simply are scientifically impossible. Right. And, and yet these core cases are often, you know, used on modern TV shows in uh, movies, as you know, based on a true story, you know that kind of thing. It's, it's
4: like I never trust that. Yeah, right. oh, they say in fact, if you watch Hangar One, which is this on the History Channel now, so-called History Channel. History is now, you know, flying saucers and ancient aliens. We need Napoleon and a few things like that on the History Channel, but no, he's not on there. It's instead it's, uh, you know, Eric Montanekin's, uh stuff. Mm. and uh actually the largest ufo conference nowadays it, it was this one in phoenix uh in, in at the uh, uh the the uh, there's a casino and uh, there in uh, fountain hills but now it's uh out in the desert they within the last two years they've been getting even bigger crowds and a lot of this is outdoors and it's called contact in the desert and <laughs> So they're bringing, and, and I mean, a lot of it is people sitting out there in 100 degree heat listening to speakers, you know, and the vendors are outside under, you know, uh, canopies uh, selling, you know, their usual twaddle. Uh, but what the, the reason they've got so many people out there is that, you know, they have these uh, uh, sukalos you know, the guy on Ancient Aliens who says, I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, you know
0: him by his hair, I think.
4: Yeah, exactly. And even, uh, Eric von Däniken himself, who is now, I think in his eighties, but he still gets around and gives talks on uh crazy, you know, ancient, uh, astronauts, uh, as well as some of the more wild conspiracy people like Stephen Greer, who uh, has uh, been making, uh, really a, a large amount of money and, uh, takes people out. If you want to pay $5,000, uh, you can spend a weekend out in the desert at night with uh, Greer and uh, his group. And they will show you the alien spaceships. Although if you are skeptical or you don't have the right uh, uh, you know, frame of mind and don't say the right things, they will ask you to leave, you see. Mm. So no skepticism allowed there. And then you just put your $5,000 down the hole and you don't even get to see the alien ships. <laughs>
0: That leads me to ask, you attend a lot of conferences every year. So what's it like to be a skeptic at one of these UFO conferences?
4: Oh, for the most part, it's just fine. Um, You know, and and this is an observation that I've kind of been making. It used to be that there were a lot of people who, I would use the word sorehead for just not want of uh, having a better term, um, that they're very upset about um, skeptics being around and questioning anything, because you know, in their view, the whole world would recognize this, you know, this alien visitation and possible alien threat. If it were not for people like myself and the late Philip Glass and so on, who are going around and saying, "See, it's all nonsense," and uh, otherwise, you know, science would recognize it. And I, you don't see so much of that anymore. And in fact, it used to be a lot of that. Um, Walt Andrus, who founded. Um, uh, one of the founders of MUFON back in the late 60s, and he ran it for like 30 years or something. And, um, he, and he just died recently in his 90s. And, um, you know, I've met him once. And uh, he he was very irascible. He was pr- pretending to be on his best behavior. But then when he got back and, you know, he and wrote his column for MUFON, he said all kinds of nasty things about me. Uh, One of the things he said about my uh, book, uh, the UFO verdict, he said it was a, an insult to the intelligence of the reader, uh, which I love so well that I use that in the uh, (laughs) book's uh, promotions and, uh, so I would consider him definitely a sore head. He didn't handle skeptics very well. There used to be a fellow, one of the one of the people from the Bay Area uh, MUFON, used to come out to the Bay Area skeptics meetings, and mm-hmm. he would just grumble and and have all kinds of nasty things to say. And but I don't find so much of that anymore. I'm I'm happy to say. Uh, there was one fellow I, I go most I, most of the time to the. Um, MUFON meetings in San Diego, and uh, it's is a strange group, but it's uh, mostly pretty friendly people. There was one fellow, and again, hes he was 80s, I think, and uh, he he would always have some kind of nasty thing to say about a skeptic being at the meeting like that. And in fact, he's not even with them anymore. He, he tried to found his own UFO group and uh, didn't have much uh, interest in it. So uh, the, I, I guess the answer is... Uh, People are maybe getting a little more mellow about that sort of thing, which is is good.
0: Yeah, they must be because I know in my husband's experience anyway, when he's been dealing with that group, he's found them to be uh, a lot more aggressive and violent than uh, the Bigfoot believers or the uh, people who believe in psychics uh, and (laughs) and just other areas of the paranormal. He's received death threats and and they've just been very vocal and very… Hostile. it, it, it certainly has
4: group is this that that is so uh...
0: um well often a lot of the supporters of stan romanek and uh, oh, yeah. jeff peckman and so it's a more of a local based thing and and this yeah. is going back maybe about 10 years as well
2: yeah and some are well, litigious like billy myers followers <laughs> yes oh yeah. yeah
0: we didn't even really talk about him did we yeah.
4: well uh michael horn his his uh own uh Little, uh, enforcer. Dog. yeah, lapdog or attack chihuahua. I think I described it once as, uh, uh <laughs> but yeah, uh, Billy Meyer is, uh, sort of like the George Adamski of uh, Switzerland. Um, he's not only a UFO contactee, he's also a time traveler. I guess they, you know, the saucer people, I guess, took him back in time or something. You got pictures of dinosaurs, you know, like uh, pterodactyls flying around, and uh. He's also a prophet, and he has written some sort of prophetic religious literature in which he claims to have predicted all kinds of worthwhile things or things. Oh, uh, so Michael there's Barnes. a prophet motive, but' <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally. a very small prophet who brings us on <laughs> returnsll: <laughs>
2: Yes. Uh, we try to finish up all our great interviews with a question, the same question, which is this: What's your favorite monster?
4: Well, I kind of like them all. Um, certainly, Nessie is cute, and all this. And there are some very, you know, esoteric monsters having to do with UFOs, as hairy humanoids and and, and the insectoids and the grays. But my favorite is Bigfoot because uh, uh, he's been around for so long. And I used to know the late great Eric Beckyard. In fact, I even went out camping with him once at a spot that he basically identified as like uh, Bigfoot's. Uh, you know headquarters or home turf up in the Sierras, and uh, so I've always had a, a very soft spot in my heart for Bigfoot. Nice, Beckyard uh, could see Bigfoot everywhere. A... Yeah, well, <laughs> no, not quite, no, but he would take pictures of the leaves, let's say, of a, and a tree, and then he would enlarge the photo greatly and then look for paranormal faces in the leaves. And this had something to do with Bigfoot. Sometimes he, these would be Bigfoot faces, so yes. Bigfoot has a large anomaly cluster uh, con- surrounding him as well. <laughs> it does indeed. <laughs> well, thank you
2: so much, Robert. I, I have a yeah, suspicion we'll have to have you back on again.
4: I think uh, well, so. Uh, well, that'll be fun. Yeah, there's still a whole lot of cases we didn't even mention. Yeah, we of- barely got Next the time. cherry
2: off the top of this Sunday. It's uh...
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, We'll meet again.
2: Monster dog. Thanks for listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and today you heard me and Karen Stolzno interview Robert Schaefer about the history of the study of UFOs. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode at monstertalk.org. There's some really amazing audio interviews from the early days of the field, as well as links to Robert's books and research. There's also a link to a site that visually explains why Robert and many researchers think that the world's first flying saucer sighting might have been of pelicans, as odd as that may sound at first. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, and the opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society, nor of Mr. Indrid Cold recently of the planet Lanulose. If you live in the San Francisco Bay Area, I'd like to remind you again to check out the Skeptical Conference by visiting SkepticalCon.com, which is spelled like SkepticalCon, but with a K, for all those living in places where they spell skeptical with a C up at the front. But let's be honest, if you're living in one of those places, you're probably not in the San Francisco Bay Area, are you? So stop shaking your fist at your podcast contraption and let's move on. Did you know you can follow me on Twitter? I'm at Dr. Atlantis. The reasons for that being my Twitter name are lost in the mists of time, for I am neither a doctor nor from nor even in support of Atlantis, yet there it is. Anyway, you can follow me on Twitter where I say terrible things and make awful puns. Marketing. Hey, speaking of marketing, if you'd like to help support Monster Talk, it would be really helpful if you take a moment and give us a review or rating on iTunes and our Google Play. It only takes a few moments, but it really helps us find new listeners. And if you're feeling really helpful, you can share a link to this or other episodes on social media. We appreciate all of our listeners, even those who can't or won't give us a review or rating. But we sure do like those ratings and reviews. I'm just saying. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening.
4: Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. And this is
2: completely unrelated, but was Asimov kind of like a rock star in those meetings?
4: I mean, what was yes, it? he was. Well, the funny thing was, he generally didn't attend. There was only one meeting of uh, one psychop meeting um, that I um, attended. Uh, Gary Posner and I. Gary's now down with uh, in Tampa, Florida, with Tampa Bay Skeptics. Uh, he was in Baltimore at the time, and I was around DC, and so we drove up to um, the to Manhattan to. Uh, the psychop uh Executive Council meeting I wasn't on the executive council, but uh you know we as fellows we could or uh, i think he Gary was a consultant we could attend and uh so Asimov was there and he didn't he sat there and he didn't say much and like so many things, the thing was late, you know the meeting was late getting started, it was supposed to be something like two o'clock to four o'clock or whatever, and so it was going to be more like two thirty to four thirty and Asimov must have been sitting there not saying anything, looking at his watch, precisely at 4 o'clock, in the middle of a conversation between Paul Kurtz and whoever else, because Kurtz talked a lot, um, Asimov simply stood up and walked to the door, didn't say a word. And everybody (laughs) looks at him, and Paul says, wait a minute, let's uh, just take a five-minute break right here. Hey where are you going? <laughs> I said you know his face is like well it's two to four o'clock, it's four o'clock, now I'm leaving, you know. So I guess that's kind of behaving like a rock star. Every day we rise,
2: challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At US Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.